Would you please turn in your copy of the scriptures to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 10 this morning is the, the passage that we'll be in. The title of the message today is, What is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? We'll be reading Acts chapter 10, and it is a lengthy narrative, but it is helpful for us to, to read through it and to really understand what the Spirit has for us in it. So I invite you to uh, make sure that your attention span is into it and that you're able to follow along. Acts chapter 10. By the way, on the back side of your bulletin is, uh, is an outline of some of the truths that we'll be looking at in, in our sermon this morning, and I invite you to follow along with those and write down your own notes. Then also inserted in your bulletin is, is a poem that we'll be looking at in just a few moments. But Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius? And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to bring to Joppa, to bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing, while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What the Lord has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him 
and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I I send for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain there. For the some days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see into a wonderful movement of the Spirit as you began to approach the Gentiles, people like us. Now the gospel is breaking into this, the rest of the world, and we thank you for the sign of grace that's shown in this narrative here. For God, your heart has always been for the world. Father, we pray that you would show us this morning whether we're like Cornelius or that we should be like Peter. But in every way, we pray that you would work in your perfect word into our hearts and let us not escape the truth that the Spirit has for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this happened in a place called Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the Roman province in Judea. You could think of it as a as a a mini capital, like a state capital, if you will. 
It happened to be the hometown of Pilate. And so it was a place that had been, uh, no doubt, made uh, on the map, at least as well, through, through his exploits. It was a place of garrison where the guards would uh, assemble, and there was a battalion there. And uh, it was made into a harbor by Herod um, at great expense. It was very opulent. And the ruins that you see here might be some, these are from Caesarea, they would be some ruins that you would see if you were to go there today. It was quite a, quite a destination for you to head to. It was really just an opulent city. It was 30 miles north of the town called Joppa. And if you've been following, at least in the story here, Joppa might sound a little familiar to you. Joppa is the place where Jonah ran to get on a boat to escape God's calling that he wouldn't have to go to Nineveh. Now, Cornelius was a gentleman who was um, in the Roman guard. He was of the Italian cohort. That means that likely Cornelius was not from this area of the world. He was probably actually from Italy, maybe even Rome itself. But a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men when it was at full strength. But the, uh, the legions, the 6,000, was divided into 10 cohorts that would be of 600 men. And in this 600 men, then we would break it down further into centurions. We always, we just tend to think of every soldier as a centurion when we look back into these times of Roman history. But not every soldier was a centurion. A centurion was, if you want to think of it, like a captain of, of 100 of these men. And so yeah, uh, the, um, the legion, uh, that is the 6,000, would have 60 centurions. These centurions, though, were seen as, as the uh, drill sergeants, if you will, the backbone of, of the Roman army. They were the, the men who got things done. They, they were the men who told everybody else how to get things done. And you never defied their orders. And while they were considered the backbone of the army, there was really um, not, not so much as daredevils as they were of natural leaders. They were steady. They were faithful. They were significant. And they were like a rock in that way as, as the backbone. They would, they would hold the ground all the way to the end of some sort of battle and attack. They were not like Navy SEALs, if you want to think of it that way. They were more like generals. And doubtless Cornelius had reached this rank of being a centurion by his great feats of courage, uh, by stamina, and by his own presence of domination and sense of responsibility. He was named after a general of, of maybe a hundred years before that was famous in the Roman army. He was more than a good soldier. You need to know that because... Uh, Luke records that for us so that we understand that. Cornelius was, was more than a good soldier. And then here we see some of his humanity here. Cornelius was someone who feared God. Someone who feared God. He was praying and he was giving of alms. And this morning, in order to give us a little bit of a look into, if we could use our biblically illuminated imagination, I wrote out a poem to just sort of see if we could look into his heart and, and see if we can give this character a little bit of color. So I ask that you would uh, be entertained at least by this and consider the truths that are in this poem. So we'll take a crack at it here. It's up on here, but it's also in um, your bulletin. I bear the general's name who, in the fray, was Caesar's right arm that punished Pompey, the great devil who launched the civil war. Then to Egypt he fled to join death's corps. Cicero's words testified of his valiant war. I wear that glory like a signet on my armor. One hundred soldiers march at my command. Everyone's death I can demand. 
I take commands from the Roman plume. A vision like Pilate's wife loomed and like orders from the Senate, I summoned lest my fate be set. Peter was the one, this zealous Galilean fishing son, curiously lodging in a tanner's home, a rising leader of the way. My servants and soldiers retrieved him, my sovereign order and request and tandem. My house was full, brothers and friends, a few gathered to witness the angel's vision come true. He entered, hallelujah, a Jew in my home, I crumpled at his feet. A centurion bowed before a fisherman, no. That's all that I could do, the chasms afford, for he wore kindness as a robe and mercy as a sword. While he preached, our hearts were torn, like the temple message he had borne, where countless pilgrims, the Savior they were shown, my heart broke like a hammer upon a stone. Many a man's blood I had spilt, Never had I felt so terrible a guilt. Many had seen the grave because of me. Now before the Almighty, I bow the knee. I had honored the God above, prayed to the Almighty in love, gave to the destitute all in pity. These were more than bronze medals in in my city. But it wasn't enough. And so I prayed. The God of all gods remained unswayed. Would he break open the brass gate? An outer court alien will wait. Yes, said the Spirit, as upon me he fell. I heard the word. His words my worry quell. Finally, fully, freely, to me he spoke. His voice, the silence, finally broke. Oh, Peter. Blessed is your hesitation, like Jonah from Joppa, on the Spirit's vessel, the the visitation, to come to my home filled with far-off ones, to bear the message of mercy to the birth of sons. O faithful God, blessings like a raging river, like Jonah's great ocean beast, to deliver the sound of grace, For the hopeless who die, myself, my family, all to Christ we fly. And I imagine that in the centurion's heart and in the home of those people who gathered around in that that place to hear Peter as he proclaimed the word of God. As the Holy Spirit fell upon them, we see a sincere and true account here of of, of conversion of heart, of brokenness of spirit. People who had never heard really just laid out before him them that Jesus Christ was the Savior of all and He could cleanse them of their sins. When you come to Acts chapter 10 in your Bibles, you recognize that the first nine chapters in the book of Acts really are the Gospel going out especially to God's chosen people, the Jewish race. Acts chapter 10 breaks open the Bible for us. And let's just see, the heart of God is for those in the outer court. The heart of God is for those who are far off. Acts chapter 10, if you could say it this way, in some ways is the beginning of how salvation moved to you and I. Acts chapter 10 is some of our heritage, is some of our, our inheritance as Gentiles who began to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. 
this was the first audience in that sense following the resurrection to here and it was uh, of the Gentiles. And now here we are. So from Joppa, Peter would be called to Caesarea. Like Jonah, he would be he would first refuse to go. Three times he would hesitate to go to, to Caesarea or to, to, to behold what God was showing him in, in the food idea. Much like Jonah, almost three times after he regretted preaching the gospel, as you remember, to Nineveh, God would work a different work or there would be a different response in the heart of Peter, who, not like Jonah, now would willingly go to Caesarea, to Nineveh, and preach the gospel of repentance to people and just like in Nineveh, in Caesarea, there would be many who would fall to their knees and confess Jesus Christ as Savior. This morning I'd like for us to look at five points in this message today that help us understand how God moves to the heart of the sinner. And that is, first of all, I want us to see that there is a preparation of the lost. We need to understand this um, here this morning. We need to ground ourselves in this. And that is that that God is preparing the heart of unbelievers to receive the gospel. God is preparing the heart of your unbelieving loved ones. He is preparing the heart of of people you might not even know, but He is already at work. You're not a surprise character. We're not a surprise character on the scene of people's lives. God has ordained that that our lives intersect with these people. And in this passage we see that God is working in the home of Cornelius and simultaneously at the home of, of Peter, the, the, Simon the Tanner, and, and Peter living there for a period of time. But two things happening simultaneously. When we recognize this, we come to realize that God is working in the heart of unbelievers and in, in many of the people whom you know, whom you have been praying for, and who you have been testifying and living out Christ in front of, God is faithful to work in their heart. Not just when you're present. God is using all sorts of tools in their hearts, from circumstances to even physical things, whether it's blessings or afflictions. God is working in a thousand ways to win the heart of the lost uh, so that they will receive the gospel. God is working in people's lives before we even meet them, before we even talk to them. The fact is that when we see in this passage here as Cornelius that these people may be doing good things, we may even, from some perception, feel like, how would this person ever come to really realize they need Jesus Christ? Because this person really is a good person, even in their own estimation. I mean, they really are a decent person. They're doing good things. This morning, they're even in a church, maybe not... Maybe not hearing a gospel at a church, or maybe they are, but, but we know that they're, they're, not an, they're not a believer. When we look at this passage, we recognize that God is working in the heart of a very devout, religious, sincere man. A man who has a fear of God, that is, he lives underneath this submission to God, not yet fully unto salvation, but he recognizes that the God of heaven is the God of all. He is one who looks upon others in his community with great pity and it seems even sacrificially gives away. He is one who prays to God. He is religious in all contexts. And Luke is careful to show us that this is the, the character of this man. He is a good person from all of these things. And he is trying to be good. But God reserves the privilege of the sharing of the gospel to those who are human instruments. 
I marvel at this so often and we see this over and over in Scripture, but I feel so insufficient, and maybe you do too, to carry the gospel message to those who are lost. I feel, Lord, would you just, like Jonah, you know, send someone else? Uh, here am I, send them. Um, and we feel like there's someone more capable than us. We even say, Lord, your angels would actually do a pretty good job of it. And here actually in Cornelius' life, an angel does appear to Cornelius, but he does not dispense the gospel. And God actually reserves the privilege, the honor of carrying the gospel to human instruments like you and I, who are not perfected, who are in no ways perfect. And it confounds us that he would do so. And it is a reminder that this, this gospel much, must enter into the heart of this person, not by means of our own convincing or by the manipulation of our own relationship, our own flesh in this, in this circumstance. We must rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to break into the heart of the lost, knowing that there is nothing of us. And as a matter of fact, it would be every, in every indication, it would be in spite of us that this person would come to know Jesus Christ. But God responds to those who sincerely seek Him with a level of knowledge they have of Him with more revelation. That is that when there are those who, who, who are turning, who are re- recognizing there's brokenness, there's a, a working of the Spirit in this. Certainly in here we see there's a, a working of the Spirit in His heart. And God moves towards them. And often that is the case of where He moves towards them in the form of, of a human like you and I who come and bring that final message of deliverance. But God saves people like Cornelius who try to be good. And I have to say that from in ministering in our community and, in, and just in my ministry, uh, it, it does confound me. It frustrates me, I think, as I, from my own human eyes, look upon those whom I know who are are sincere, but yet they're self-righteous. They're religious, and yet not trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And so often I, I'm discouraged. How could, the, how could I ever deliver to them? How could I ever convince them is really my heart. Can I ever convince them to lay aside their merit and recognize really it's demerit, and they need to, by faith, through grace, trust in Jesus Christ alone because they, they think they're so good. How will this ever happen? And it discourages me at times. But I think this passage is here in order to break through some of that. Because the power is not in me that would ever convert the human heart. And far be it, and we, we, we would never want someone to be convinced that they're saved by our mere human schemes and by our slick presentation or our well-worded and well-timed deliverance of the gospel. This passage in here is to show us that God will save people who think they're good. You remember the radio program called Unshackled. And you heard story after story of just people whose lives were so broken, so torn up by, by sin, especially seeing so many circumstances of violence and substance abuse. And they, they came to, to a crushing end of their own, uh, their own design, uh, of, their own, of their own lifestyle. And, and God met them right there. This passage in here is is to show us that it isn't just the ones who are just so severely outwardly broken that need the gospel to be delivered to them. It is those who are so inwardly broken and self-deceived in their own self-righteousness 
that need to hear the same exact deliverance of the gospel as those who are so visibly broken. When, um, when Cornelius responds, he says, What is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? This was uh, something of a routine for him to say. This is how he would have responded to his superiors, his commanding officers. This is the response to the ranking officer. He would have used this in a way of honoring his superiors and obeying their commands without question. And really, this is the right kind of response for all who are far off from God, all who are unreconciled in their relationship with God. What is it, Lord? This morning, as we opened up our, our message, I, I prayed and I, I asked the Lord, Lord, would you, would you show us if we're, if we're a Cornelius or if, we're, if we could be a Peter? And I wonder this morning, as, as you listen this morning, if, if this might just define a little bit of your life where, where you, you have a couple reasons why you are good. You're very frequent, you're very faithful, you're very devout, you're very sincere. And perhaps, perhaps you need to come to this, this real humble prayer this morning and just say, I don't know what else there can be. I don't know what else there is to do. But Lord, what is it? What is it, Lord? I think sometimes the heart might say, Will you command me to walk through fire? If so, I'll do that. We might even think, will, will you command me to, to jump off a cliff? I might not do that, but if that's what you require for me to be saved, I might do that. But what if the Lord comes to you this morning in this message and in the Word of God, and I believe He does come to you in this way. What if He says to you, it isn't walking through the coals of fire. It isn't something great like jumping off a cliff. But what if God says that all you need to do is humble yourself and in simple faith believe that He is your Savior and that forsaking your sin and placing your trust in Him will be the way of salvation. The sad reality is that so many people would rather say, I would rather walk on coals of fire. I would rather live a life of servitude unto religion and law and whatever else of self-pressure or outside pressure is upon me. But the gospel is so simplistic that it, it breaks through the, the barriers of pride. It says, no, 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 th- this is, you don't need to do any of those things. And so many people say, ah, but I would rather do something hard. Do you recognize what God is saying to you? This actually is the hardest. It's to say, not in me dwells any good thing. To lay aside this. The second truth I see in this, not only is there a preparation of the lost, but there's a preparation of Peter, of the witness. Do you recognize this morning, faithful Christian, that that God is, is calling you to be a faithful witness. 
He is preparing you simultaneously with the preparing the lost one. He's preparing you. Yes, all, all sorts of ways, un, unnamed ways. I couldn't even come up with a list because so sovereign is he that he's using just so many equations and circumstances and, and where you're at in your faith and, and even logistically, geographically, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, in all these ways. God is just effortlessly using a variety of factors in your life to prepare you. How did Jesus, how did God prepare Peter to tell Cornelius the good news? Well, when you look in this passage, you realize it's actually not by attending some like revival services. Uh, It's not by even devout worship in the temple. No, when you actually look at this passage, what Peter's doing in the house is he's actually hungry. He's not in the middle of devotions, you know. He's not in the middle of some praise and worship concert. He's in the middle of like, I'm really hungry. And God comes to him and says, hey, let me teach you something here. You need to break out of your biases. And and actually there's a people that I need for you to go to. Hunger. There's something so basic. Hunger was like the whale for, for Jonah. It was that which carried Peter to where he needed to be to, to, to be obedient unto the Lord. And here is Peter. He receives a vision. So Cornelius receives a revelation. We'll just call it revelation. And Peter receives a revelation. And listen, revelation leads to evangelization. Revelation leads to evangelization. You say, what do you mean, Pastor Jerry? That is that when you dig into the Word of God, the obedient heart, the faith-filled heart, takes the revelation that you have received and we, and we transfer it on. We carry it forward to the next person who needs to hear. Revelation leads to evangelization. And that disciple who comes to the Word of God and says, teach me, Lord, how to share and spread the good news is the one that is in the Word of God. Revelation leads to evangelization. It even leads to opportunity to evangelize. Peter here, as we had mentioned before, preaches to the first gathering of unsaved Gentiles. But Peter wasn't used to being in a Gentile home. He, he calls it out right as soon as he entered into the home. He was, he was one who had been obeying the rules, whatever rules there were, especially culturally as a Jew. But the, you see, the, th- the people in that, that home, they didn't know about the rules so much. They didn't really even care about the rules. They just wanted to hear what the messenger of God had for them to hear. Sometimes I I feel that cultural Christianity is is an obstacle to the witness of Christ. We expect someone else to be a certain way. We're baffled, we're heartbroken, we're confused, we're even discouraged from sharing the gospel to them because they don't measure up. We have certain biases against them, their lifestyle. But the fact is that if sinners aren't right for the gospel, then then we're left with the question, if sinners aren't right for the gospel, then who is? If sinners need to clean themselves up before we share the gospel with them, then they will never hear the gospel. If sinners have to obey the rules, if sinners have to look and act a certain way before before they earn from us the privilege of, of declaring to them the gospel, then, then we will never have the opportunity. Listen, the sin of those whom, whom you seek to witness to must not be frustrating to you 
as an unqualifier for them to be recipients of the good news. Let it be instead for you a symbol and a sign of how desperately they need to hear about the grace of Jesus Christ. Peter needed to move beyond the rules to just speak of what was really important, and that is Jesus Christ. Did Peter have it all together? No, he was a mess. I mean, he had just come from this vision. He was still sorting things out. He, he actually, as we know later on, will still stumble through this whole clean, unclean thing and Gentiles receiving the gospel and things. Uh, he still is a, a work in progress. Now, Peter was a lot like you and I, more than we would probably even recognize. But I also recognize that Peter didn't have like Paul's epistle to the church of Ephesus. He didn't have... Uh, the book of John. He actually didn't have any of the New Testament books. But he had his own witness of Jesus Christ. You say, Pastor Jury, I, I never really, really memorized, I've never really ever just taken hold of a way of presenting the gospel to someone. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I don't feel very confident in sharing with someone the good news of Jesus Christ. I just don't have, I can't remember the Romans road and sometimes in the middle of the moment I, I stumble and, 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 you know, all these different things. I understand. But Peter didn't have any of these things either. But Peter knew Jesus. And if you know Jesus, then you have enough to share. It was one thing for Peter to share the gospel and witness its reception among the Samaritans and along with Philip and John earlier in the book of Acts. And then it was another thing to learn that the Ethiopian eunuch who had received Christ by the testimony of Philip, but at least the eunuch didn't return back to Israel and Jerusalem and seek to be accepted by the church. But now Peter would have to be confronted with the largest bias and prejudice of his life. The question that would remain in his heart, even as he was preaching to them and being obedient to God, is, can a Gentile be saved? Can these dogs, can these, can these far-off ones, can they know Jesus like me? I mean, I was with him when he fed the 5,000. I was with him when he walked into the upper room and said, behold, my hands and my side. I know Jesus. Can they? And let me say, does that question ever haunt you? Does that ever prevent you from sharing the gospel? I know Jesus, and I've walked with Him for many a time, but can this person really come to know the Jesus that I've come to know? And Peter didn't have all the answers to that. But he did begin by obedience to just be there in the middle of them and tell them what he knew to be true about Jesus. You see, God met Cornelius where he was at in his sincerity with that vision and said, I have more to tell you. God met Peter where he was at and said, I have more for you to do and more to tell you. Let me say this. God comes to us as disciples of his and says, 
wherever you're at, whether it's sincerity or hunger or bias or, um, or fear. I'm going to meet you where you're at. I just want you to go. And you will have it all together. It won't be like the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 on the portico. It won't be as eloquent as Isaiah's words. But it's not your words that save them. Just go and tell them about Jesus. And so God prepares messengers and God is preparing you and I. And God's timing is perfect. And from culture to kingdom, God is unifying people of all different cultures unto the kingdom. We say, but this person just seems so different. And I'm not even convinced when they come to Christ that they're going to live Christianity out the way I think it should be lived. Wait a second. It's about the kingdom of Christ, right? Let's first preach the good news of the kingdom and leave the work of Christ to the work of Christ in their heart. God builds his kingdom from different cultures really to make one culture. What applies, what Peter learns in this, is what applies to the food that he was shown in his vision applies to people. They all become clean. And so Peter preaches in this way. Then thirdly, what does he preach? He proclaims the gospel. There's a proclamation of the gospel. Some people need a a way of of conversation that sounds apologetic. They they need reasoning and they need logic and they they need some sort of conversation that, that answers some of their hard questions. And others just need a bold and brazen proclamation. You just need Jesus. Will you just, we just stop it. We just break your heart before the Lord and just, let's just right here. And some people need that bold proclamation. But here Peter opens the gospel with just sharing Jesus Christ in a very gracious way, inviting them to look upon Jesus the way that he saw him. Let me just tell you who Jesus is from my perspective. I saw him raise the dead to life. I saw him walk upon walk amidst broken people and showing mercy and compassion to those whose bodies were broken. But let me tell you the greatest thing about him. That he went to the cross and he died to carry the weight and the penalty of your sin and my sin. And he went into the grave and he paid it in full. And God demonstrated his acceptance of his offering by raising him from the grave. And as he's saying those things, the Holy Spirit is pouring upon the people's hearts and convicting them right there. Peter doesn't even get to the end of his sermon. Do you know what? You, you might not have all the words. But there might, I, I want to use this as a special instance, there might be an opportunity for you to just tell the story. You say, I don't know if I can remember every single Scripture passage and the time together. I'm not sure if I get one out of order. And I'm just not good with Scripture memory. And it just on the spot I get nervous and my mind blanks out. Just tell the story. I have a feeling that in that story, God will start to put Scripture into some of that story that you've hid away. I know that for my own account. But tell the story. Tell of the one who you know and love. 
tell it like a narrative. You say, I'm, I'm, I'm not really good at apologetics, defending and going back and forth and finally winning the argument. I'm not good at, at just being like real bold, like you need Jesus. So, and then they'll just say, yeah, and you hear stories about that. But you know, you and I are pretty good at telling stories. And that's what Peter does. And he doesn't get a chance to finish his sermon and God's conviction settles in. And it's a mysterious thing. The conversion of the heart, the, the working of God in the heart, it's a mysterious thing. Confession of the mouth is necessary following the believing in the heart. The moment of a conversion, the moment of a person comes to Christ is punctiliar. There's a word for you. It is a definite moment in which a soul is transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is an exact moment. It is an event. It is an actual and transactional time that we can think of as less as more of an event. It's necessary, absolutely necessary to happen to anyone, to everyone. Yet some might say, I don't know when I first believed. Well, that's okay. But do you believe? You might not know when that moment happened, but do you believe today? Here certainly there seems to be a distinct moment when these people believed. It wasn't up to the control of Peter when that occurred. And that's okay. Uh, Peter stopped (laughs) what he was saying and began to recognize God working in the heart. I think sometimes there's time to talk and sometimes there's time to not and to let God work in the heart. That didn't go quite as planned for Peter, I think. I'm sure on the way to, from Joppa to Caesarea, he was you know, working through his, his how, what am I going to share with them? He didn't get to share it all. He shared enough. But I think there's times when we become very, very discouraged about sharing the gospel. But I want to share with you five assurances that help me as I, as I encourage myself in the sharing of the gospel with others. That is, first of all, my insecurity about the faithfulness of my life, I know who I am, and testimony does not hinder God's work in their heart. That is, yes, certainly I am called to a holy and high calling and to live Christ out in my life. But another person's salvation, their eternal destiny, is not resting on whether or not I am perfect. No one would ever come to Christ if there needed to be a perfect messenger to carry the gospel. Secondly, my false sense of sovereignty should be repented of and replaced with a prayerful dependence upon God's leading of the heart. I don't get to dictate the path to their salvation. Sometimes as we are so burdened, and I think rightly so for those who are lost and far off, we think, how can this work out? When will they? And we try to work it all out for the Lord. Oh Lord, at this time it would be really great if they, it would be really good. Oh, I invited them to church, then all of a sudden they get sick and they didn't come. And that was the Sunday that pastor was going to preach the gospel. And I know what it's like to be there to desire for a loved one to to come to something and to hear the gospel and something prevents them. It could be their own choices, sinful choices, just acted out and maybe maybe it's also providence in some way. We need to repent of that. God is sovereign. Thirdly, my faltering words in the presentation of the gospel will never have the power to convict their heart. No word of mine can save them. Praise God. 
God's living word is his power to save them. God reserves all the boasting and glory by the means of his word through his spirit. Then fourthly, my schemes to manipulate the context and relationship with the lost do not compare to the great story of God's redemption that began before time. I need to repent of my scheming and anxiety. Again, that if, everything, if this could just work out, then I know they would, they would know Jesus. Do you think that the God who made all universe is caught by surprise by man when he acts sinful and is unaware of his own providence that he works out in people's lives? Oh no, God is working. And fifthly, the fifth assurance is my prejudices and biases contradict the heart of God in the gospel, whether they are lived out toward unbelievers or believers alike. We need to be careful and humble as we look out and say, who needs to be saved and who doesn't? Then fourthly, not only the proclamation of the gospel, we see the response of the faith-filled. I want you to notice something. These people were not converted. Okay, They were not the children of God. They were not born again until they received the hearing of the gospel. No matter how good they were, uh, even though they were giving alms, even though they were praying to God, this passage shows us that a good person is not truly converted until they believe upon Jesus Christ alone. The fact is that if the good works and the fear of God, the submission to his authority, could have saved the soul, Luke builds the case here to say Cornelius would not have needed for Peter to come to his house. If these good works, if this sincerity, even as sincere and devout as this man was, if they could save the soul, then Peter didn't need to preach the good news. They didn't need Jesus. Cornelius would have already had a relationship with God and Peter wouldn't have needed to come to his house and preach. But listen, when the word of God is shared, people believe. When the word of God is shared, people believe. The word of God is shared and it's that simple. There's no baptism. There's no good works. There's no church building. There's no nothing Christian about the circumstances in Cornelius' home. It is simply by the declaration of the Word of God, by an obedient witness, and its faith-filled reception that leads to these people's eternal salvation. It is as simple and as pure and as wonderful and freeing as that. It is without flesh and without effort. And so they hear and they believe. And their belief, we recognize, is not just a mental assent. And it wasn't just with the head. Oh, I know this to be true. I've heard about the story about Jesus. But we recognize that it is marked by faith-filled obedience. There's a clear demonstration that they are obeying the voice of God, not merely acknowledging it. They are turning away from their unbelief. Listen, belief, as simple as it is, we could say it, belief is turning away from unbelief. It is called repentance. And everyone who comes to Christ truly is coming to Him from unbelief, even if they're a good person. Even if they have a fear of God that is a general sense of submission unto God, following religious and good things and whatever, everyone who comes to Christ truly comes to Him from the position of unbelief, even if they have known about Him. And listen, 
even if, and I speak to people often this way, even if they have loved God all their life, they need to believe upon Him and Him alone. And parents, this is really helpful as we disciple our children, as we look to discuss the Gospel with our children and, and children's ministry and children around us. But we hear this frequently from children. I love God. And they'll draw pictures. And there's no doubt to their sincerity. And we, we applaud that type of tenderness. And that is, by the way, I would believe the preparation of the lost. But what we need to help them understand is that they need to receive the love of God. And the way in which God has said, the way in which they receive the love of God is to recognize that they, they do not love Him perfectly. They could never love Him perfectly. But there was one who stood in their place, who loved them and loved them and loved God and provided that way in simple terms. So the Holy Spirit comes upon these people immediately. There's not a second wave of the Holy Spirit. They, they call out upon God for salvation here. And they, 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 um, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, them immediately. There's no second work of grace, if you will. It is an immediate and indwelling and empowering presence. And so there's a few lessons in understanding that. Number one, Peter needed to see that these Gentiles would be in the church too. He needed to see that people that were so unlikely, people who in, in Judaism had been in the outer court, now would be at the table for communion. Right next to their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Peter needed to see that. And by the way, we need to see that. We need to see people's lives being changed in front of each other. By the way, some of this is exemplified in the sharing of testimonies with one another. But it is also speaks to us as an opportunity to, to share an invitation um, to our gatherings, uh, to those who you think would never come. And to see what God will do. There was also another lesson that was learned. There was nothing hindering them from having God with them. There was nothing hindering them from having God with them. Peter leads these gathering, this gathering into discipleship, showing them that Christ had identified with them and they can joyfully respond in baptism in their identity with Him. He also demonstrates in the, the corporate baptism of this, uh, this situation, he demonstrates to them that they are identifying with the faithful in their baptism with, in front of one another. And so they're identifying with Jesus and they're identifying with the redeemed, the people of God, both in that house and also in the larger testimony of God's people around the world. But I also notice that there becomes, there grows out of this response a fellowship of the faithful. A fellowship of the faithful. Now we recognize here at the end, at the end of the passage that the Bible says, that verse number 49, they asked him to remain for some days. So Peter would stay with them. He would stay in the house of a Gentile. And he would still struggle with this whole thing and the food and everything. But at least God was discipling him, leading him to a better understanding what God has intended for the Gospel. The Gospel isn't just for those who have their lives put together. 
the good news of Jesus Christ is that everybody needs the good news. Whether sincere, devout, religious person or broken pauper, everybody needs the good news. And so there becomes a a sweet fellowship now. Peter would not have imagined uh, enjoying the company and, and sitting at the table with Gentiles, especially underneath the roof of a Gentile. How sweet was the fellowship of of those new believers who would see the life of Christ unfolded before them in the the discipling work of Peter as he stayed with them. Peter needed this as much as they did. Let me say that again. They needed Peter to tell them more about Christ, how to follow him. But listen, as we see Peter's ministry unfold to the church, And as God would lead him to further understand that the gospel truly was for the Gentiles, Peter needed to remain in this. He needed to disciple as much as the people needed to be discipled. Peter needed this as much as they did. And you know what? That's really what a picture of discipleship is like. The disciple needs... I'm sorry, the discipler needs the disciple as much as the other. In learning Christ together, each is discipled. You grow in faith as you share faith. And so that's because it's a living word. It's it's not imparting information. It's not, here's how many books of the Bible there is. Here's here's this and here's that. Here's this knowledge and this knowledge. But true discipleship is, is rooted in the livingness of the Word of God. It is a living and vital transaction and transformation. It's not merely, discipleship isn't merely imparting knowledge, although it does have knowledge included in it, but it is, it is more than even just teaching about religion. But the fact is that disciples who are discipling are being discipled. Disciples are discipling and discipled. It's a lifelong adventure. No one, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, can say, I have been discipled. I was discipled. Now listen, we are a church of the, of the, of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And part of our mission, integral in our mission, is that we would be a growing, thriving gathering of disciples. This is part of our, part of our joy to enter into. We ought to be engaging with one another in, in discipleship moments and we set aside times in our church schedule to do that. We, we prioritize um, times, for example, on Sundays to come together and the fact is that we need to be discipled by one another. None of us have arrived yet. And we need a disciple. And so it is a, a beautiful and wonderful thing. But it seems at the end that both men, Peter and Cornelius, obeyed the voice of the Lord as if to say, what is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? One, Peter, was, was called to, to reach the lost, even those who he was prejudiced towards, even those who seemed so unlikely to receive the gospel message. But the other one was called unto repentance and faith. Cornelius was brought to his knees 
even as a devout and good man, to realize that his good works could not forgive his sins. And while he was good, he remained condemned a sinner and thus deserving of God's eternal judgment. So this morning we ask, and my heart leans in towards you if this morning you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Are you a Cornelius? Let me say you're not so far off. This morning you can come to Jesus Christ and finally lay aside everything that you thought you were counting on and lay it aside and say, but I'm going to believe in Jesus today. I'm going to lay aside everything and trust in Him alone for my salvation. Or this morning, I think there's another type of person here this morning, and that is, in the Spirit of God encourages us in this word, will you be a Peter? Will you be someone who gives of themselves to learning and, and, and praying and, and, and being a messenger, knowing full well that God is working about in other people's hearts while He's working about in yours, and you, an imperfect vessel, bring a perfect word to bring people to a knowledge, a saving knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ. So are you a Peter or are you a Cornelius? And I believe this passage brings us to those two types of people. Let's pray.